Before we begin, I want to tell you about a really funny and insightful movie podcast called I Saw What You Did. Every week, Millie DeCherico and Daniel Henderson share a double feature with a different wild theme and explore how our life stories impact the movies that we love. Millie and Danielle discuss cult classics through a feminist lens, have conversations about their film crushes throughout the ages, and provide hilarious hot takes on just about everything. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can follow I Saw What You Did wherever you get your podcasts. The Moth is a great podcast to hear true stories told by people from all walks of life in front of live audiences. And The Moth is bringing you a very special episode about a galaxy far, far away. In honor of May the 4th, or Star Wars Day, they're going to feature hilarious and heartwarming stories about the way that Star Wars has changed people's worlds. Listen now by searching The Moth on Spotify, Apple, iHeart, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Imaginary Worlds, a show about how we create them and why we suspend our disbelief. I'm Eric Malinsky. And this guy needs no introduction. But the composer of that music does. Now, until recently, I hadn't thought much about who wrote the music to Godzilla. And that's partially because the music just fits so perfectly with the visuals. And then I talked to John DeSantis. He is a conductor who specializes in performing the music of Akira Ifkube, the man who scored many Godzilla films, including the first movie from 1954. Ifkube, his music, especially for Godzilla himself, the monster himself or herself, was very visual. Like the theme, like the ba 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 like that, like it's drawing your eye upwards. The theme is going upwards and like, oh my God, and then your peaks and then it comes back down. It's very visually like you're looking up and you're seeing this this larger than life horrific creature. I asked John, what is a really unique thing about Yves Kube that only he as a conductor or maybe a musician would notice? And he said, Yves Kube loves to use alternating time signatures. I didn't know what that meant. So explain it to me. Most pop songs and stuff you hear are in four, 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 you know, one and two and three and four. You can have a mix of that and or something can start and go from three to five, which is one and two and three, one and two and three and four and five, one and two and three. And then, you know, he'll throw in like a three, like one, two, three, one and two and three. Like like the like the Godzilla theme, the theme that opens Godzilla 1954 is actually an alternating 4-4 four, four, and 5-4 beat. So it's like... It's so funny to hear you do that. I hear the music in my head every, t- every time you yep. do that. But perhaps the most interesting aspect of Yves Kube's work on Godzilla is that he and the director, Ishiro Honda, had different ideas about what Godzilla represented. The director, Honda, saw Godzilla purely as a monster... But to Afkube, Godzilla was an anti-hero. Nope, usually in that kind of situation, the director would make the composer comply to his vision, or he'd replace the composer. But Honda had so much respect for Afkube, he let him compose a score that tells a different story musically than what's on screen. And this is a rare story of two artists having a conversation that takes place within a single work of commercial art. And that conversation, that artistic conversation between the music and the visuals, adds layers of depth to the movie. 
but their disagreement wasn't just about Godzilla. It was really about Japan and its role during World War II. How that played out in a Godzilla movie is just after the break. Eric Hominick runs a website about Akira Ifukube, and Eric has immersed himself in studying the composer's work. And Eric says you can't separate his music from his life experiences. Every creative choice that Ifukube made came from a personal place, going back to his childhood. As a child, when he was playing outside, he loved collecting reptiles and insects. He would go out into the forest and collect and capture these things and bring them home. And he was just fascinated studying their anatomy, uh, what they looked like, what their behaviors were like. If you think about it, in these monster films, what are these monsters? Well, they're giant reptiles. They're giant insects. These are like blown up super images of the animals that he collected and was so close to and fascinated by as a youth. There was something about these films that, in a sense, brought out the child in him. If Kube was raised in a town called Hokkaido, which is deep in the north of Japan. And that part of Japan is an ancient home for an indigenous people called the Ainu. And having so many Ainu friends, I think through, through his interactions with them, he was able to develop an even more profound and, dare I say, spiritual connection to nature. The Ainu are ethnically distinct from most Japanese. Historically, the Ainu had been looked down upon as primitive. If Kube found that fascinating. In fact, he would later call his own style of music primitivism, and he often used Ainu culture as his inspiration. But as a conductor, John DeSantis can see that if Kube's primitivism is a trick of the ear. He says, look at the music in the first Godzilla film, when the locals on Odo Island are performing a ritual dance about their history with Godzilla. The music feels very traditional, but if Kube is using mostly Western instruments. It sounds like he's using uh, traditional instruments, but he's not. He has one traditional instrument on there, which is uh, a drum called the piangu, and that's kind of what has like that wood block, like ta 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 kind of sound to it. So in reality, he, it's deceptively primitive. It's almost like it's advanced and it's tricking your mind into thinking that it's, it's a little bit more primitive than it actually is. Raiko Yamada is a composer and musician. She studied under Yif Kube at the Tokyo College of Music. She was always impressed with his work and they got along very well. But for many years, she couldn't understand why he was so enamored with ancient Japanese folk music. I grew up studying Western piano, and most of Japanese musicians start with German textbook and learning only Western music theory. And so, in fact, when I encountered Ikube's uh, piano suite for the first time, a piece that is based on Japanese folk song, so it did not interest me, and I have no idea how to play it. But then many years later, Reiko Yamada was living in Chicago, and she got into a car accident, a very serious car accident. Yeah, actually, I was in uh, surgical intensive care for 11 days, almost like close to die, and then it made me my kind of uh, life 
change the life. So how to face the life or how to think about, you know, like it's, it was big things. It's one of the reasons maybe I started practice his piece. Learning how to play his music became part of her healing process, physically and emotionally, because in rediscovering his work, she could feel his deep spiritual connection to ancient Japanese culture. Living many years away from Japan in the United States, I started thinking more about own culture or identity. And I thought it's really need to think about you know, more Japanese culture. And I began to reflect again on the teaching of Maestro Ikube. So in my quest to find a deeper artistic identity, I was reminded his remarks about the understanding of one's own cultural identity. I was thinking more seriously about what I am, who is who I am, or what should I do in the United States as a Japanese, like, you know, so many things. Now, back in the 1950s, Yufkube's contemporaries would have been surprised to hear him described as a quintessential Japanese composer. His music had not accepted for a long time in Japan. Since the Japanese music world was influenced by European style after World War II, and many Japanese blindly appreciate only imported culture and reject or even despise traditional culture. And Eric says at the time, Japan's cultural elite looked down on Ifukube. A good example is a composer called Hikaru Hayashi, who was a considered to be a leader in the Japanese music world at the time. He was a, a very cosmopolitan composer, wanted to promote Western music in Japan at the time, and referred to Akira Ifukube as an idiot when Ifukube's one and only symphony called Sinfonia Topkara, which is based on, on Ainu musical aesthetics, was written in 1954. Hayashi lambasted the piece, said that we can't even qualify this, this symphony as music based on what we know music to be. Now, 1954 was also the year that Ifukube was offered the job of composing music for Godzilla. His friends, who knew how much he was struggling to gain respectability, told him, don't take this job. Colleagues of his thought the film seemed like it would be pulp trash. It was a, it was a monster film, not very serious. Why would you want your name and career to be attached to something so, so silly or, or juvenile? And, you know, despite people very vigorously urging him not to take such an assignment, uh, the composer himself was actually quite excited about it. He, uh, he said that when he read the screenplay, he got like an electric shock, a, a true rush of excitement over the themes of the film. But as I mentioned earlier, Yvkube's understanding of the themes of the film was different than how the director understood them. And once again, we need to go back to his life story. During the war, he was very pro-empire. And John says he can feel Yvkube's nostalgia for imperial Japan and the score to Godzilla. Mr. Ifukube was a nationalist, 
uh, he's he, for most of his life he still was at the time of Godzilla. It was very, very soon after the war. In in his military march in the film, uh, which is actually has its origins in a classical piece he wrote called Kishimai, it would make sense to me that he would use that march that. Uh, began essentially as a, a good fortune dance for the Japanese Imperial Army. Uh, that was the theme that he repurposed for the uh, what became known as the the frigate march or like the military march for uh, for the original Godzilla. It goes without saying that the that Japan committed numerous atrocities, and I think that had the composer known what was really happening. I don't think that he would have been for that. He was a very cultured and, and gentle man in many ways. And I don't think that he would have wanted, you know, such horrible violence for its own sake to be inflicted on people. I, I think that he very, although he supported Japanese efforts during the second world war, I think he was naive as to what was really happening. Now, if Kube never saw combat, during the war, his job was to reverse engineer U.S. fighter planes. And to do so, he used X-rays without a protective lead suit. Eric Hominick says if Kube knew that radiation was dangerous. But unfortunately, lead was too expensive for wartime rations. And at the very conclusion of the war, he was walking near his laboratory one day and he collapsed and coughed up blood due to the radiation poisoning. And he spent about a year almost bedridden directly after the war recovering from radiation sickness. So especially in the first Godzilla film, you know, after Godzilla's rampage in Tokyo, there's this very mournful music that is playing over scenes of people in hospitals, the victim of Godzilla. And there's a very poignant scene where there's a young child and somebody is holding a Geiger counter up to the child, and the Geiger counter is showing that this child has been irradiated, much like the victims who survived of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And this very poignant, even funereal music by Ifkube is playing over these scenes. I think one of the reasons why this music is so effective is because the composer himself experienced radiation sickness, radiation poisoning. He himself was irradiated. But he was not against the atomic bomb itself. In fact, after Hiroshima, he was more shocked that the United States had the technology to make an atomic bomb and defeat the Japanese empire. He, he just couldn't believe that, that the Japan was, was so far behind, as it turns out, the West. And it was a little bit of a, of a bitterness and a resentment that he never quite got over, I don't think. I mean, he, he didn't have animus towards, towards Westerners. I mean, Americans and Europeans would often visit him at his home in, in Tokyo to interview him about his music, about his film scores, and he was always extremely welcoming to, to all of them. But I really don't think, in the more general sense, he got over the immense disappointment that Japan could actually be beaten by the West. And John says those feelings influenced the way that Ifkube saw Godzilla right from the start. One of the things that fascinated him about the character of Godzilla was that he had said, I, I believe, that like Japan was taken down by from in World War II, Japan was defeated by more advanced weapons. But he loved the fact that there was this creature that advanced weaponry could not 
destroyer lake and they had ultimately had to come up with something even more advanced that being the oxygen destroyer to to destroy godzilla during godzilla's tokyo raid he doesn't touch any of the ancient sites he doesn't destroy the imperial palace he doesn't wreck uh, sites like the Asakusa Buddhist Temple. It's all modern Western-style buildings that he's toppling. So he thought that was very exciting. And Godzilla represents the angry spirit of the pre-Westernized Japan, you know, an, an ancient life force that is angry that Japan not only lost the war, but is becoming Westernized. So Godzilla rises from the depths angry at what... Japan has become. Now, that was never the intention of the director, Ishiro Honda. He saw Godzilla as a cautionary tale against nuclear power. And that goes back to his life experience. Now, if Kube understood the war entirely through Japanese media in the 1940s, which was all propaganda, but Honda saw the carnage of war up close. Honda was conscripted no less than three times into the Japanese army during the war, and he actually did see action. And uh, towards the end of the war, Honda was taken as a prisoner of war in China. And when Honda was, at the end of the war, when Honda was being repatriated back to Japan, he actually passed through Hiroshima and saw with his own eyes what the atomic bomb did there. So if Honda saw Godzilla as the bomb incarnate, or even war incarnate, then Godzilla was a monster that had to be defeated. But since if Kube saw Godzilla as the angry spirit of ancient Japan, then his version of Godzilla was an anti-hero. And audiences started to see Godzilla that way too. I mean, if you look at the later films the franchise, Godzilla is Japan's protector, even if he's not always stable or reliable. And Eric Hominick says you can trace that back to the influence that the music had on the audience during the very first Godzilla film, especially at the end, when we're supposed to feel relief that Godzilla has been defeated. After Godzilla is dead, Ifkube repeats the same music, this prayer for peace, to represent the tragedy of Godzilla's death that he uses earlier in the film, after the scenes of destruction in Tokyo, there is a, a television broadcast of an all-girls choir singing this very mournful melody called the, the Prayer for Peace, mourning the victims of Godzilla. I think what the composer is doing, he's equating the death of Godzilla directly to the death of his victims. Of course, the original Godzilla film was such a huge hit, they figured out a way to bring the monster back for a sequel. Or dozens of sequels. And as the years went on, if Kube continued scoring Godzilla films and other monster movies, or kaiju films as they're called, and he continued to use his skills as an ethnomusicologist. For instance, in King Kong vs. Godzilla, he used island folk music that was specific to where certain scenes were taking place. Meanwhile, he kept working on classical pieces for concert halls. But his reputation as a composer of kaiju films was like the monster he couldn't escape. So in fact, there was something that he said one time where he said, you know, the, the film score that I worked on for maybe a month or two 
Everybody knows that. But the concert work that I worked for on two years, nobody knows. Eventually, he went into teaching, where he encouraged his students to find their own voice, no matter what the world tells them. And I asked Raiko Yamada if her former teacher ever talked about his film experiences. He uh, talked about film directors or movie in his class a lot. And um, it really depends on the director. But I believe that he didn't take the job when the director's ideas about the music were too strict. And um, Japanese film composers also often have less time to write the music than in the U.S. This would often be frustrating for him. In the end, it was his students who got him the respect that he deserved. And they accomplished this by staging a concert performance of his Godzilla scores. Eric Hominick says, at first, if Kube did not like this idea, he told the students that music is for movies. It does not belong in a concert hall. But people pressed him. We want to hear this music in the concert hall. This is music that deserves to be heard in the concert hall. So he finally relented and said, okay. So in 1983, he wrote uh, three pieces of music called the Symphonic Fantasias. And these are three concert suites of music from his monster scores. The three Symphonic Fantasias were premiered in Tokyo in 1983 to rave reviews. Rave reviews. In fact, some of those reviews were written by the very same people who had dismissed him years earlier, including the critic who had once called Ifkube an idiot. And after this concert, he admitted that he was wrong. But John DeSantis thinks that Ifkube still needs more recognition in the West. That's why John has dedicated so much time to conducting Godzilla scores. My, my goal is simply for people to enjoy hearing music that they never thought they'd get to hear live in that kind of setting in North America, because nobody else in North America was, was doing it at the time, or still is. Do you find that, I mean, what kind of reactions do you, do you get from people in that regard? I mean, do people come up to you and just say, uh, or what, what do they say? <laughs> Anything from, I, I can't believe uh, I've, I've ever got to hear that, thank you so much, to you make a grown man cry. <laughs> and I'm usually, you know, I just kind of say, thank, I thank our musicians, you know, because the musicians are really who make that authentic sound come forth, especially the uh, the brass players and the uh, the trumpet players. This music's very hard to play sometimes. And John was excited that in the most recent film, Godzilla, King of the Monsters, the composer Bear McCreary adapted Ifkube's scores throughout the film. And that is the first time that a Godzilla movie that was made in Hollywood paid tribute to Ifkube. The use of his music in that new movie is probably one of the most significant mainstream representations that he's had i mean at least as far as eyeballs and ears on his scores probably since the 1960s raiko yamada also wants to spread the word about ifkube although she focuses on performing his classical work like the ritmica ostinata when i play uh, start learning ritmica ostinata it was so very difficult and actually, I gave up a long time ago. You really? You gave up? <laughs> yeah, because I love that piece so much because that uh, piece gave me the chance to meet Ikube, Maestro Ikube. And I, I asked him so many questions about that piece too. But I watched the music and then like, 
it's impossible, I thought. <laughs> I asked Raiko if she can hear a difference between the music that Ifkube wrote for concert halls as opposed to kaiju films. In my mind, I never feel like kaiju. So he totally, you know, stay with his way of the style, like style of the composition. So that is amazing. Although not surprising, because everything he wrote was personal to him. And if Kube's story is similar to a lot of artists, they put their blood, sweat, and tears into their work. But how their work is received and what part of it is valued or remembered is out of their control. And that can be so frustrating because great artists are usually perfectionists who want to have full creative control over their work. I mean, if Kube may have wished that he was better known for his classical pieces, but he created something that went far beyond his own life, something that is part of global culture. And he may have seen Godzilla as the spirit of ancient Japan, but in a way he became the spirit that guided the monster back again and again and again and again. That is it for this week. Thank you for listening. Special thanks to Raku Yamada, Eric Hominick, and John DeSantis. And special thanks to Joe Musinski, a listener who suggested this episode. My assistant producer is Stephanie Billman. You can like the show on Facebook. I tweeted E. Malinsky and Imagine Worlds Pod. And the show's website is imaginaryworldspodcast.org. On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Well, we dove deep into the empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct, murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale. It's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now.